few months ago, I'm lying in bed unable to sleep, and I come across an article in The New Yorker titled The Shaming Industrial Complex by Becca Rothfield. The article makes the observation that today, shame is not only an emotion, something we feel, but it's also our social state, part of our standard model for social interaction. We currently live in an age where shaming has ostensibly become a social pastime. We're all familiar with cancel culture. Collectively, we can decide within a matter of hours that someone is irredeemably a bad person for doing or saying something reprehensible. And even though most people would hesitate to participate in this degree of shaming in the quote-unquote real world, online discourse permeates our offline attitudes and exchanges. The article then poses the following question. Within this social model, should we be treating shame as a matter of psychology or of politics? There are arguments on both sides. On one hand, shame has too often been used as a weapon against the oppressed, and the prevailing narrative currently is that we might rehabilitate shame in order to discipline racists, homophobes, misogynists, and the like. On the other hand, we can think of shame as a systemic issue. Rothfield points out that today, in the era of the shaming industrial complex, big tech like Facebook and Google actually profit from what she calls shame events. And they design their platforms and algorithms to encourage these types of events. I've thought many times about the dynamics of shame, having experienced my fair share of it like most people I imagine. And I'm fascinated by this question of whether it can be a positive influence. And if not, what should we do with it? So I go looking for answers. This is You Are Invited. Episode 3, Listening Posts. We, as survivors of rape and sexual violence ourselves, had this idea for a fund where survivors of sexual violence could apply for really small amounts of money to spend on whatever they wanted. And then it just grew. We really started to go into, well, what is it that we want to challenge and what is it that we actually want to change? Because half the time... Megan Baker runs the organisation Sleek with her friend Bryony Ball. Sleek is an acronym for Survivors Leading Essential Education and Change. So we created this, it was called an emergency men's learning course because we were like, it's a fucking emergency. It's a four week course. We, me and Bryony have written it ourselves. It's heavily informed on our experiences as survivors, as women, and as people that have worked in the system. We're really trying to strip away this idea of right and wrong. It's just about creating a space where we can hold conversations that maybe a lot of men don't feel able to have with other men. We feel really privileged to be in that space and as survivors being able to give our perspective and that be actually heard. She makes the point that in the pub or on social media or other settings we regularly share our thoughts and ideas, if a man tries to start an open conversation about feelings of shame related to sex, at best somebody would probably quickly change the subject and at worst that man might be ridiculed. Some of the actions that they've taken and the behaviour in which they've displayed, which if we would put that in society, they'd be cancelled. Men get raised to always want sex. 
the shame that a lot of men feel when that isn't necessarily inherent to them or it's just not something that they think about all the time that this idea that if you don't have that experience as a man then you're not really a man as a 30 year old guy who spent his fair share of time in all male social spaces i can definitely relate to what megan is saying even as a fully grown male adult I occasionally find myself in situations where I'm expected to perform a hypersexual idea of masculinity, and I'm very uncomfortable in those scenarios. I always try to change the subject or eject myself from the conversation somehow, and I'm pretty sure that on both sides of those awkward exchanges, there are feelings of both judgment and shame. A really interesting one, basically they were in a lockdown with their partner, female partner. She had felt quite pressured to have more more regular sex when he himself didn't necessarily want to have more sex. And, you know, his initial response was, I'm really fucking sorry. Like, I'd never want you, my partner, to feel pressurised to have sex with me. But that's not me. And she was like, but it is you because you're the one that's made me feel pressure to have more sex. And I think a lot of men could really relate to that. Or the flip side of that, when you don't, as a man, want to have sex with your partner, not because you're not attracted to them, but because they're maybe more tuned in to actually what their libido is. And I know for a lot of women, that's really confronting for them because we as women have also been conditioned to believe that men are hypersexual and we should want to have sex all the time and then we internalize that and so that shame is almost batted between us. Megan tells me that at least for those who attend the men's learning course this is a very common experience but it's dangerous to talk about this stuff in public. The fact that people need a dedicated safe space to talk about a feeling so ordinary reinforces what I read in Becca Rothfield's article about shame being our current social state. I think it's just about exploring the conditions in which we've been, like, told we have to experience sex. You know, I have a penis, I should be using it, I sh- and there's the word should again, which is linked to shame. And it's always a reflection of what you're lacking, often that word. And it's all of these ideas that men are being raised to believe about themselves and then about other men. Some of the men that came on are almost on the opposite end of what we've been talking, which is they're hyper aware. Because the conversations around masculinity and around male privilege have shifted over the last five years. They've maybe internalised this idea that being a man is wrong nowadays and that actually it's something to feel shame about. It doesn't make us as women feel better. I don't want anyone to feel shame for the experience of the body in which they are being born into. We don't choose that. But we do then have a level of responsibility when we become conscious adults to reflect on that. But what we need to be careful that we don't do is go so far into that that it prevents us from actually getting it wrong. You know, you're going to fuck up. That's just part of life. You're going to harm. That's part of life. It's about the accountability that you take. And I think there's been this fear of fucking up as a man and what that means now, which is getting cancelled. Rather than trying to figure out which parts of masculinity we want to honour, and which parts we want to try and erase, the culture has reached a level of repression where, as far as Megan sees it, both not being enough of a man and being a man can be shameful. The work that Megan and Bryony are doing at Sleek is frankly pretty radical, now that I know that we're living under the shaming industrial complex. But there is one question that I can't get out of my mind during our conversation. 
based on the examples you've given, I think we can understand there's not like a lot of exchange being had between anybody who cancels somebody and somebody who's being cancelled and that seems quite destructive but then also you can understand why somebody might want to shame somebody if they've had a really really traumatic experience and I'm really interested to hear what you might have to say about interactions you've had with people who feel like they deserve to get to shame somebody who's raped them I would never ever determine how someone wants to experience their their suffering or experience their pain or experience their trauma. I don't get to determine that. But from a personal perspective as someone who's experienced rape and the man that raped me went to prison, which again was not necessarily my choice. It was again the expected thing that would happen. You've committed a crime. There are parameters that are set upon us in so many ways. In particular, this idea that we must feel anger, feel rage, feel hatred, feel pain towards the person that's inflicted us harm. And I never really felt that much anger towards the man who specifically raped me. And I felt so much shame that I didn't feel that. We say rapist or we say criminal. And what we do is we set a limitation on that person now that they are that. That's your entirety and that's you now for life. And what that does is it never allows that person to be anything more than that. So then they will stay in that cycle. But if we use the words that person that's caused harm, you can come back from that because actually we all harm one another. It's part of life. Without saying it outright, Megan is making a clear distinction here between guilt and shame. According to the brilliant American social worker Brene Brown, Guilt is concerned with a negative moral self-evaluation. In other words, I did something bad. And shame implies a non-moral negative self-evaluation. In other words, I am bad. So Megan is saying that if you feel guilt, that can be constructive because it's a recognition that you've caused harm and you might face the consequences for the harm caused. But with guilt, you can choose to change that part of your behavior or not to repeat it especially if you're given non-judgmental support. Shame, however, suggests that because of causing harm, you're now a bad person. And that does not leave a lot of room to change because it is now part of your identity. And being judged by others to be a bad person will likely cause you to further interiorize that bad behavior because you're being led to believe by others that your behavior is inextricably and permanently who you are. Someone will come, I'm four o'clock Saturday afternoon, I'm here waiting if anybody wants to come. <laughs> sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. This um, is Father Richard so Mackay, the priest at St. Nicholas of Tolentino Roman Catholic Church in Bristol. I figure that if I'm going to get my head around my question of whether shame can be useful, I should ask an expert on faith because everyone has heard stories about the ways that organized religion can abuse faith to shame people into subservience. I'm nervous about this conversation because there's so much that I want to ask Father Mackay about directly, but I don't want to offend him. So I decide to focus on confession, thinking it will be a tangible jumping off point to talk about some of the structural and historic issues related to Catholic faith and shame. 
When I meet him, I learn that Father Mackay has been a priest for 50 years and that he prefers to call confession the sacrament of reconciliation because that puts the focus on the redemptive mercy of God rather than the sin one is being absolved of. And I also learn that St. Nicholas of Tolentino is, by Roman Catholic standards, a very progressive church. We have over 60 nationalities in the community. Because you have um, LGBT yeah. uh, plus mass as well. And for signed, signed mass for the deaf as well. And also Father Mackay is benevolent and receptive, and he's trying to be as inclusive as possible within a framework that is historically very conservative. There's actually nothing more for me to add here, so I'll just let the taped conversation take it away. Have you ever felt that somebody's carrying sort of too much shame or that their faith is sort of damaging them more than, than it is helping them? Yes, I think every priest knows that in every parish there are one or two who have this kind of religious mania where everything is pushed to in a, a kind of religious extreme and endless prayers, endless repetition. That can be really difficult to express within the sacrament of reconciliation. And in the end, that isn't. That can be harmful. Do you think that that's solely a, a psychological problem or do you think that, that that's partly a structural problem in terms of the way that Catholicism or Christianity influences people? I think fundamentally it is a psychological problem, but it's a psychological problem that can be made worse by the way faith is expressed. What I would say is that I think there are certain forms of... Um, of every Christian tradition that can easily contribute and make worse those obsessive or psychological patterns. I can only really say uh, you know, how I encourage people in the sacrament. What I am aware of is that many people have had bad experiences where they have been shouted at in very condemning language from the priest, which is the absolute opposite of what should be and a lot of people have had those experiences, sadly. And sometimes it's been even worse. Um, the whole crisis of sexual abuse has actually damaged people's confidence in this sacrament, because we also know there have been cases where the closed nature of this sacrament has been used in order to abuse people. The Sacrament of Reconciliation offers a mechanism for cleansing or purging. But I'm also interested in whether you think that the fact that it offers a mechanism for confessing things means that you there are things that you should feel shame for and whether that actually perpetuates or encourages people to feel self-judgment. I want to make quite a, a big distinction between shame and guilt, which are essentially emotions, to accountability which is about awareness. I don't believe God punishes anybody. I think God does hold us to account. And this sacrament rec represents an opportunity to embrace that. So I really reflect on my life, reflect on the things that need changing, and don't just take them for granted. Is there not a certain way in which the church decides what people should feel accountable for? No. There has to be some objective values somewhere. The church helps us to recognise 
what are ethical actions or what are not ethical actions. It doesn't mean that necessarily everybody agrees with the objective teaching of the church, but a fundamental teaching of the church is you have to follow your conscience, even when your conscience doesn't agree with the church. The objective teachings of this church are different to the historical objective teachings. You're a very inclusive church. Being gay, for example, is not a sin in this church. I'm interested in how you feel about your objective teachings having the potential for reform, because you have reformed some historical objective truths. Yeah, absolutely. We are people in process. We develop our understanding. I think the whole area of sexuality, which you've alluded to, is an area of development at this time. So we're translating it from the categories of sinful sexual behaviour to the integrity with which we live our identity. Not everybody is there yet. And one of the challenges, for instance, for a to have an LGBTQ community in this parish, in that being a very welcoming community, we have various cultures who have been brought up to with absolute cut and dried condemnation of things like homosexuality. And so it's been quite a challenge for quite a few of our community here as well. And what is interesting is that they have shifted their understanding to quite a remarkable degree and What's happening in our parish, as it were, is happening in the wider church as well. Recently, I had a conversation with somebody who's been in and out of prison and whatever, and he's found somebody who really loves him, and he's wanting to change. And my experience as a prison chaplain is that punishment doesn't change anybody. It's only when there's love that motivates them to change. I have been profoundly moved when people have really opened at quite a deep level their lives to me, said things that were really, really very difficult. Have you ever felt that you're, you're out of your depth or that perhaps you're not the right person for that sort of conversation? There have been times when I thought, I wish I could help this person more. But in the end, I'm there not as a therapist, but to help people open up. You, you can't meet everybody's needs, that's for sure. You can't meet everybody's needs. What you can do as a priest is always offer mercy, compassion and forgiveness. We need the experience of radical acceptance of who we are and perhaps particularly a non-judgmental acceptance of our darker shadow sides with another human being. The human need to be able to say the difficult things to another human being, knowing that they are not going to reject you, they're not going to judge you, they're going to take what you say as a gift, as it were, is profoundly spiritual. Some years ago, I was, I was asked to uh, sit on a, any questions type panel. And one of the other people on the panel was a professional psychiatrist. He was asked the question, what do you think is the greatest need of our society at the moment? And he replied instantly, greatest need is for listening posts.
I have my own opinions about religion and the Roman Catholic Church, but I don't pretend to know whether it causes more harm or good. Father Mackay, at least as far as I can tell, is very conscious of the dangers and limitations of Roman Catholic Christianity and is doing what he can to harness faith as a positive influence on his community. I really like what he says about listening posts, non-judgmental spaces where people can be vulnerable are a common theme in both of my conversations so far. Both Sleek's men's learning course and the Sacrament of Reconciliation are listening posts. When we arrived, when I arrived here, this entire 50-acre valley was one hayfield. Wow. And there were no hedges, no tracks, uh, no little fields, nothing. I'm now at Ambercombe, an eco-retreat centre in the hills of rural Devon, where I've come to interview Mac McCartney. Mac is an expert on environmental shame. He's spoken at conferences around the world about nature and sustainability in organizational leadership. He's also written two books and is the founder of Embercombe, this beautiful 50-acre valley at the end of a 10-mile uphill cycle I've just completed. This might be the sweatiest I've ever turned up to interview someone, and I'm slightly embarrassed as I meet him outside a yurt, and the first question I have to ask him is, can I please fill up my water bottle? Embercombe runs experiential programs informed by Mac's work and his time being mentored by indigenous people over many years. But before he started this place, Mac spent over 30 years in organizational development, trying to convince big corporations to change their environmental policies to reflect the seriousness of global warming and climate change. I thought if I work with these organizations, I wonder if I can uh, in some way or other erode their belief in the work they're doing whilst hiding under the screen of organisation development. Because as far as I can see, they're not doing anything useful in the world and they are some of the big engines that are destroying it. Mac was running these sustainability workshops with some of the highest performing corporate teams in the world. He tells me a story from early in his career of working with a team from the enormous American multinational corporation, Procter & Gamble. Two days in, and all of our team knew that we had completely and totally failed. Expert after expert made presentations, what we're doing to soil, what we're doing to water, how the climate is shifting, all the graphs and all the curves. And these people were leaning back, yawning, saying, we know it's important to you, we're doing really well. We have mortgages, we have all these things. And we, I think we were down to certainly the last day and the day was going to finish after lunch. I said, can I do something with this group? I have no idea if it'll succeed, but I think given where we're at, we almost have nothing to lose. Came back with the group and I said, I'd like you to sit in a circle. So there's a few groans and because that this already signals to them is a lovey-dovey sort of sharing thing. And I said, now, I want to pose a question which I would like each one of you to answer. But before I give you the question, I want you to promise to me that you will answer this question courageously and honestly. They quite like this sort of thing, you know. It's a dare. And I indicated this person because I believed that they were going to go for it. Because how something like this begins often dictates how it will subsequently move. 
What is it that you most deeply and profoundly love? And there was a sort of groan in the room. But I said, you promised. Three people in, we have the first tears. They really went for it, you know. They were a sales team. They were emotional people, you know. All kinds of stuff starts pouring out. And what did they talk about, of course? What they, people always talk about, really. Their children, their families, their friends. Beautiful places in nature. The hopes and fears they have. I noticed that, like Megan and Father Mackay, Mac has created his own form of listening post. And this method worked a lot for Mac and his company. When he was trying to change the behavior of people he believed were doing harm, bombarding them with information that suggested that their business practices were damaging the planet was much less effective than simply providing a space where corporate people could be vulnerable and share without judgment. He was able to convince some really influential corporations that were doing significant damage to the natural world to change the way they worked. Why did that happen? But here at Embercombe, and, I, and I'm sure many multitudes of other places, you sit people in a circle, and if you hold that space in a way that feels respectful to those involved, with a question that does find its way through whatever armour they may be wearing, you somehow, in the way that you are and the way that you introduce it, invite them to do something that they rarely ever do, but I think most people long to do, which is to speak to the things that matter to them. I think if the circumstances are right, the environment's right, the sense of safety is right, people invariably go for it. Not everybody, but you only need one or two, and that will trigger others. Because what you're really saying is, we are a group of people. We are all of us rather fragile, is the truth of the matter. Where somebody behaves in some way on one of the programs we run, let's say, in a way that they embarrass themselves and feel shame, if our purpose is to resolve and find a positive outcome, we cannot simply abandon that person to that feeling. They'll get in their car and leave early. They'll find a story, a way of resolving this in their own mind that puts them in the right, if you like, and disavows whatever it was that ever happened. But if we can take that moment and through them feeling safe enough not to try and dodge out of it while they go through whatever emotional disturbance there is that accompanies it, then we're on some kind of pathway about now, where do we move from here? That we can say, yes, that was me. And I'm standing in front of it and I see it and it's profoundly upsetting. But I realize I have choice and I don't, do not have to repeat that. Unfortunately, the effects of Mac's work would never last long because the profitability model of organizations means that shareholders will eventually demand their returns. And in order to keep their jobs, teams will invariably roll back to the unsustainable models. Another example being with Barclays Bank in Kenya, when the then CEO stated to his people, we're here for to answer the question, do we as a bank owe anything to the world's poor? They were the most hated bank for a very good reason and they did, undoubtedly. So it was a brave move. We took them into Kibera at that time. I don't know if it still is Africa's biggest slum in Nairobi. We met and more to the point smelt profound poverty. We were stepping over inert figures lying on the dirt. We didn't know if they were dead or alive. Pickup truck goes in the morning, takes the bodies out. I mean, fierce stuff. 
They come back and there's all this sharing. And they are absolutely behind this new initiative. Actually, for many of these people, it was a huge relief. It was like a feeling of, yes, yes, yes. Finally, we can act in alignment with our own personal values, match our corporate values. Lasted, I don't know, two or three years, and then they lobbed him out because they didn't think he got an eye for the bottom line. Max saw this happen repeatedly, until the mid-90s when he lost faith in what he was doing. We've created a beast of a system that can never be satisfied. We have a situation where the general rule is if there are two people together, both will be needing to work. And many people, even then, don't have enough. So you've got countless people in work earning money that's insufficient to meet even the most basic needs they have. But what's happening with the corporations? Their profits keep growing and the world socially, environmentally and in other ways counts the cost. So yes, my, my feeling now is uh, the entire economic system as it stands needs to be redesigned. Just as I figure I'm getting somewhere, that listening posts is the theme that will glue my half-formed story together, that I can use this common thread to reach a tidy conclusion about what comes after shame. It's listening posts, guys. I did it. Put them everywhere. Shout it from the rooftops. Mac tells me that this is unlikely to change things quickly enough in the face of global environmental and economic crisis. And I'm reminded of the shaming industrial complex that the market rules culture, and that shame will be around for as long as it's profitable. But there must still be something I can learn from this. While listening posts aren't immediately going to stop corporations from burning fossil fuels, or big tech from profiting from polarization and shame events, I can apply this to the way I speak, think about, and relate to others. The answer to whether we should treat shame as a matter of politics or psychology, a systemic issue or an issue of individuals, is both. Larger structural changes need to happen. All three of my interviews confirmed that. But all three are also showing how smaller individual and community action can begin to make larger positive changes. Listening posts, spaces where we can be vulnerable and wrong and still belong at the end of it, seem to be more productive for discouraging harmful behavior than shaming people. As I put this podcast together and grasp for a conclusion, that seems pretty trivial to me. But I remind myself that vulnerability is actually countercultural under the shaming industrial complex. So I have resolved to create a listening post of my own in podcast form. If you're listening to this story and have something that you would like to share, but haven't yet found a space where you felt you can be vulnerable enough to do so, contact me at Sam James Walsh on Twitter or Samuel James Walsh on Instagram. All stories will remain anonymous by request. The first listening post episode, which will be released in tandem with this story, features a medic who made the hardest decision of her life when she was doing humanitarian work in a hospital in Sierra Leone. This episode was written, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Walsh. Thank you to anyone who listened.